I'll ask you to wrap it up and head back to your seats. And as you do, um, I will read the scripture upon which our teaching is based this morning, and it comes from Galatians chapter 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin. We've been looking uh, since Easter at Paul's letter to the Galatian church, um, a great charter of Christian freedom, because we've seen how Paul is passionately defending the gospel, the pure gospel, that all you need to have a good relationship with God is faith in Jesus Christ, nothing else. And he writes the letter because the churches that he had planted in Galatia, which is central Turkey now, they'd been uh, infiltrated by teachers who came after him. Jewish Christians who said that because Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, in order to be a real Christian, you first have to become Jewish. You have to live under the law of Moses. You have to circumcise your male children. You have to follow all the, the rules and, and uh, restrictions of the law of Israel. And Paul is adamant. Jesus Christ alone. Faith in him alone. That's what you need. Last time we saw how Paul unites the Old and the New Testament through Abraham and shows how God's faith in Abraham, the other way around, Abraham's faith in God, even when God says, sacrifice your only son Isaac, is matched with Christian faith in God, the God who sacrifices his only son, Jesus Christ. The Bible is united. Faith is faith in the same God. The God who is alive, who has acted in history through Jesus Christ, and our faith is faith in the God who acts through Christ and him alone. Nothing else. That's what Paul is fighting for. So let's see how he continues. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of law. So Paul is continuing his argument here. The book of law is what Judaism calls the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Christian theologians typically refer to it as the Pentateuch. Pentateuch mean, penta meaning five scrolls. They summarize everything that Moses taught. They summarize what 
Moses received from God at Mount Sinai and gave to Israel to turn Israel from a bunch of slaves, a rabble, into a holy people, ready for the, the promised land. But notice, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. To Jewish ears, this is outrageous. Israel is defined by the book of the law, by the Torah. And Paul here is saying, you're cursed. What is, it, what is he talking about? He's repeating something that he heard from Jesus, that Jesus himself taught. There's a place in Matthew where Jesus is confronted by the teachers of the law, by the religious elite of Israel and the Pharisees. And this is what he says to them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. The law was a good thing. It was a gift. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything that they do is for others to see. The law, the law of Moses, was originally good. As I say, it turned a rabble into a holy people. It was a gift from God. But the law, when it is used to oppress people, to control people, when it is used by an elite to sustain themselves, becomes a curse. Because what after all is the purpose of the law? To point to God. The purpose is to have a relationship with a loving God, the God who saved Israel. But when the law becomes an end to itself, when it becomes ungracious, when it becomes oppressive, when it becomes a tool of oppression, that is the opposite of a relationship with a loving God. It becomes a curse. So that's what Paul is saying here. By the way, what is the purpose of the law? Should we follow Paul here and say everything in the Old Testament isn't worth anything to us? The purpose of the law, as Christian theologians have understood it, is to point to Christ. The Reformers, the Reformed theologians who started the Protestant Reformation, identified three good reasons for the law. The first is it just restrains bad behavior. It defines what's good and bad. It shows you that there is right and wrong, especially in relationship to God. That's the first use. In a sense, it reveals the holy God and reveals our unworthiness. The second thing it does is to instill fear. Even unspiritual people are afraid of going to jail. But spiritual people, people who are seeking out God, also recognize that the law drives them to depend on the God who is merciful. 
It's only when you recognize you can't be completely good that you can begin to recognize your need for a Savior, for a God who forgives, for a sacrifice from God to pay the price that we cannot pay. And the third use, particularly for spiritual people, particularly nowadays for Christians, is to reveal what's on God's mind. What is his character like? How can we please him? The law, the law reveals the outlines of God's character. And so you don't fulfill the law in order to make God love you. He already does. But lovingly looking at the law as a way of pleasing the God who has loved you. Now, that's all a bit abstract, perhaps. This is the sort of stuff theologians study. It's the sort of stuff pastors study at seminary. It's certainly what I spend a lot of time on. But it's a bit abstract. How can you understand this relationship with God through the law? And I think the best way is to look at the way Jesus taught it. Jesus didn't lecture. Jesus told stories, told parables, as a way of unpacking truth, as a way of planting a memorable little seed in our minds that we could spend the rest of our life unpacking and understanding. And the relationship of God and law and human beings, he unpacked in one of his most famous stories, The Prodigal Son. Now this is, this story is a little personal to me. This is the, listening to Tim Keller in Manhattan preach on The Prodigal Son was the moment that I understood the gospel. I think there's one step where you begin to believe in God where you begin to have confidence that the idea of God is not just an idea, but he is a reality. But how do you relate to him? How do you love him? How does he love you? It was the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, that unpacked that for me. And in fact, is the basis for Tim Keller's ministry in Manhattan. His uh, wonderful book, The Prodigal Son, I recommend it to you, where he unpacks this parable and applies it to every aspect of life. It's just a, an amazing book if you want the basics of Christianity. Tim Keller, The Prodigal Son, well worth reading. So I'm going to go through the story with you. If you want to follow in your Bible, it's Luke 15, starting in verse 11. And it is Jesus Christ unpacking our relationship with God through the law. He tells this parable to the Pharisees. You know, they're after him. They're trying to challenge him, try to understand him. And he tells a whole series of parables, trying to explain to them what the purpose of the law is. Uh, this is only one, is one of the more famous. But as you listen to it, think of the poignancy of what is happening. The Pharisees were Jesus' enemies. They were the ones that ultimately drove him to the point where he gets crucified on the cross. The Pharisees were the only ones that really upset Jesus. And yet here he is pleading to them, trying to help them understand who he is and why he came. So this is Luke 15, starting verse 11. 
And remember, we're going through this to understand the relationship of God, the law, and human beings. Jesus continued. He's continuing this series of parables to the Pharisees. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now this would have been a shocking thing to do. Typically, sons, and then it was typically the first son, but sometimes that's here a division. Typically you inherited when your parent died, when your father died. To ask for your inheritance before his death is like saying, I wish you were dead. I'd rather have the inheritance than you. And it would have been extraordinarily costly. Back then, there weren't such things as banks. There wasn't much money around. Wealth was measured in things, in land, in uh, cattle, livestock, in workers. In order to convert that into wealth, you'd have to sell it off. So he's asking his father to sell off half of what they have. This would have been a dramatic reduction in his prestige in the community. To the Pharisees' ears, this would be a very ungrateful child. Not long after that, the youngest son got together all he had, set up for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Doesn't want anything to do with his family. Wants to define himself, go somewhere far away so he can be who he wants to be, live the dream, do whatever he wants. Reminds me of me coming to New York for the first time. By the way, I identify with the younger son in this, this part. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill, to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave anything. When you're rich and young, it's great to be freed of responsibilities, to be somewhere where nobody knows you. To be rich, you can invent yourself. It's great not to be known. But when you get poor, having nobody around, having nobody who cares is terrifying because there's no bottom. You can get completely destitute, starving, as this young man is here. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. When he came to his senses, when he realized he was not an orphan, that he was not alone, that he was a son, that there was a family, that there was a father, that there were people who cared. In essence, if you want to use Christian language, he repented, that is, he turned back to where he was from. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Notice, his father doesn't wait on the door with his arms folded, tapping his foot, waiting to hear repentance. His father runs out to greet him, delighted to see him. By the way, if you think in Christian terms and you're wondering, what is the good news? That's the good news. That God is as eager to welcome us and forgive us and bring us back into his family. That he comes after us. Doesn't wait for us to come to him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Double repentance. Forgiveness. He asks for forgiveness from the person, his father. But also recognize his responsibility as a creature to heaven. Recognizes that he has acted less than humanly. And he needs to be restored to his full humanity. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The robe and the ring, meaning he's not just returning as another worker or another member of an extended family. His position is being restored. He is having his place of honor restored to him as he comes back. And his robe, the best robe, this would have been part of his inheritance, now his older brother's inheritance. He's essentially being restored to where he was, forgiven, celebrated, restored, and redeemed. And most sermons, most moral, moralistic religion would end right there. That this is the nature of our relationship with God. We're bad, and God is good, but if we'd only repent of our badness, turn back to God, he will forgive us and restore us into the family. Isn't that Christianity right there? Well, no. Because the parable doesn't end there. Remember, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. They would have been very approving of this version of religion. Because they saw themselves as the good guys. And they were quite willing to forgive bad people and restore them, as long as the repentance was appropriate, made with the abject humility they demanded. Pharisees are completely happy with this version of religion. But Jesus continues. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. 
So he crawled out to one of the servants and asked him, What was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Why is the older brother so angry? Well, he's a good guy. He's the dutiful son who has followed the rules, who has stayed at home and worked in the fields, and done everything that is appropriate for an elder son to do. But he doesn't get a party. If I'm a good guy, why is my terrible brother getting all the celebration? By the way, now I'm an older brother because I am the older brother of four siblings and they got away with murder. So I can totally understand what he's thinking right here. Worse than that, now that, that he's back, is he going to get half of my inheritance again? Half of what's left? The older brother can't understand. It makes no sense to him. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. I slave from you. His sense of self-righteousness, you know, he had done the right thing, has turned him from a son to a slave. I never disobeyed your orders. He doesn't have a relationship with his father as a loving son, with a loving father. This is a relationship you have with a boss who issues orders. I couldn't celebrate with my friends. He doesn't want to celebrate with his dad. Why didn't you give me even a young goat so I could go off and, and find my friends and celebrate with them? When this son of yours... He doesn't even see the younger brother as part of his family. doesn't see him as a brother. What is happening here? Remember... Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. It is easy to think that Christianity is about forgiveness of bad people. But what this parable points out is forgiveness needs to be extended to good people too. Who is in the party here? The younger son, the bad guy. Easy for him to come back. He just has to repent and turn. Who is outside? The elder brother. The law-abiding rule keeper. This parable ends on an ambiguous note. My son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's where the parable ends. The younger brother, 
the traditional bad guy, the prodigal, is inside with the father celebrating a member of the family again through his repentance. But does the older brother come back to the party? Or is the older brother alienated by his own goodness, his own sense of self-righteousness? The way he has turned his relationship with his father from one of love and obedience out of love into rules, proving himself worthy of the inheritance because he obeys rules rather than because he's got a relationship with his father. And remember, Jesus is pleading with the Pharisees when he tells this parable. He's saying to them, you are the older brother. You're the ones that know the law. And you've turned the law into a way of avoiding God. Your self-righteousness has alienated you from the very thing you say you're all about. From the very person. So what does this have to do with us? Well, are you a younger brother or an older brother? You know, most people who make it to New York, not all, but many, are the kinds of people who know how to follow the rules, who pass exams in high school and join the right clubs, who did all right things and hung out with the good people, who went to college, who got good grades, who applied to the right firms and became professionals in the city, rule keepers, good people, impeccable. The danger is that that becomes your self-righteousness. Think what Jesus is saying in this parable. You not only have to repent for your wrongdoing, you also have to repent for your right doing. You have to repent for all the ways that you have built your own record, that you've made a name for yourself despite or in spite of God. Why are you here? Some of you are here because you feel like the young brother, you've repented and turned back to God. But some of you, and I include myself in this, think that we're here because we're the good guys. What, by the way, is more wholesome than a Presbyterian pastor? I pray because people pray with me. I read the Bible because I have to preach every week. I go to church because it's my job. Pastors are notoriously susceptible to this kind of self-righteousness. It's why so many pastors blow up. They mistake going through the motions as being in real relationship with God. Why are you here? Are you an elder brother? Are you a younger brother? Have you done terrible things? Or have you done very good things? When we come to this table, both of us are going to have to repent. Of the things that we've done bad, lest they keep us from God. But also of the things that we've done right, lest we rest on them instead of Christ's righteousness. Notice how this passage ends. 
Now I'm back here, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Self-righteous people, people who've lived orderly, good lives, need to repent just as much as people who are disorderly and have lived lives of error, filled with problems and dysfunction. How do you redeem such people? The very good people and the very bad people. The only way is to look at Jesus as the true elder brother. Nobody is right before God based on their own record. Nobody. Because God does not grade on a curve. Just because you think you're better than most people doesn't make you a good person. You know, in a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table. The Lord's table, he's going to be right here. And we are going to stand before him, naked. If you are perfect, you don't need Jesus to come to this table. If you've never done anything wrong, never had a single wicked thought, then your record justifies you to come to this table. But if you are less than perfect, even if you're better than most, even if you're better than everybody else in the world, you still need Jesus to come to this table because he alone has a perfect record. More than that, you don't just look at the perfect Jesus. You look at the Jesus who was the true elder brother. He was with God the Father in his blessing for all eternity. And yet, what did he do? He left that blessed relationship, and he entered a cursed world, our world, our broken world. And he put himself under the law, not with his perfect record, but with our record. And he gave up his inheritance so that we could become sons of God, our Father. Gave us his name. Became alienated from God when all the sins of all the people of the world were placed on him. Lost life, though that he was the Lord of life. When you see Christ doing that for you, leaving the blessing and entering the curse and becoming a curse so that you can come home, there's no self-righteousness. But you have to see him doing it for you. You have to recognize that you need him to do it for you. And when you come to the table, you have to claim it. Jesus Christ alone, nothing else, nothing in addition, just him. Let go of everything in your life that's bad, but also let go of everything in your life that is good, that you think makes you a good person. Come naked. Come in faith. 
be welcomed back into the blessing of the Father's home. That's the Christian gospel that Paul is fighting for in the Galatians. Christ alone. Don't let anything else, good or bad, distract you. Hold on to him, and then you have the gospel. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is not like a jealous elder brother who gets angry with our feelings, who seeks to do us in and keep your inheritance and his inheritance from us. But the Christ is the true elder brother who comes after us when we're lost, who brings us home, who shares the wealth, who gives us his name, who removes every barrier, even at the cost of himself. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Make us men and women of faith in him alone. We pray in his name alone. Amen.